Hello, welcome to the Six String Hayride podcast with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Join us on a journey through the world of classic country music. We will be talking about murder, prison, love, death, trains, horses, dancing, drinking, guitar picking, and the all-time great albums of country music. Stay tuned at the end of the episode. We'll be giving out recipes from the June Carter Johnny Cash Family Cookbook. And my partner Chris here is going to tell us what's on the hayride this week. Murder. It's been part of every civilization since before the dawn of recorded history. The killing of another may be driven by monetary gain, passion gone wrong, or the desire for justice. Sometimes the reason is nothing more than a sick son of a bitch making the decision to take a life. Songs about murder have been such a part of traditional music that a subgenre was named for them, murder ballads. Today, Six String Hayride will talk about some all-time classic murder ballads. We'll cover Marty Robbins' classic, El Paso, but perhaps with a twist you haven't considered. The Leuven Brothers will make an appearance with one of the oldest derivative murder songs, Knoxville Girl. You can hear us agree that Earl very much had to die, talk about the perils of cheating with your best friend's wife, the pain of unrequited love, and why Tom Dooley was bound to die. Along the way, we hope to entertain you and perhaps get you to see these old songs in a new light. So climb on board the cart and let's go for a ride. Stay tuned for the Cash Carter cornbread recipe at the end of the show. Okay, well, you can't talk murder songs without talking about the great Marty Robbins and the song that the man is going to be known for for all eternity, El Paso. This is from September of 1959. It's been covered by a ton of people, up to and including the Grateful Dead, which little unexpected, but it really works. Uh, but with Marty Robbins, yeah, his signature song, it's really kind of sets the high bar for these murder type ballads. His record label had a problem with this as a single originally because it's over four and a half minutes long. And in 1959, that's really long for any kind of radio play. This is also one of the first times where a record company and radio and an artist had any kind of debate like that. Nothing like this would happen again until the mid-60s with Bob Dylan like a Rolling Stone. And then in 1968, when the Beatles put out Hey Jude at a whopping eight minutes. A lot of what really drives this song for Robbins musically is the timing. It's a waltz, a three-fourth time, and you get that urgency in it. It also made it a real popular dance hall number in the late 50s and early 60s, despite the storyline for the song, uh, which is really, again, sets the high bar for these type of murder songs. Texas town of El Paso I fell in love with a Mexican girl Nighttime would find me in Rose's cantina Music would play and Felina would whirl We have a guy who is in love with a wicked woman, Felina and a dashing stranger comes into the bar and our hero is immediately insecure to the point of challenging the stranger to a gunfight. One night a wild young cowboy came in, wild as the West Texas wind. Dashing and daring and 
drink he was sharing with wicked Felina, the girl that I love. So in anger, I challenged his right for the love of this maiden. Down with his hand for the gun that he wore. That goes poorly. The handsome stranger dead on the floor. Our hero is swiping a horse and getting out of town. He realizes quickly that he would rather die than go without dear Felina. Wicked or not, he's got to have her. He gets himself back into town. And this is where the song really gets an almost existential literary kind of quality to it. Our hero is anti-hero really comes back to town and he can see that there's a dozen cowboys coming on one side there's a few more coming up behind him on the other he hears the rifle he sees the smoke he feels the bullet he says deep in his chest you're thinking okay she's really got to be worth something for the guy to go through all this and again musically it's just driven by that three four that Beautiful, beautiful flamenco guitar part that drives it. It's uh, Grady Martin, part of the Nashville A-Team. He was also the main guitar player on a lot of the Patsy Cline records from this era. But he really creates a driving, a a real hard Spanish flamenco beat. And if you're going to call the song El Paso and you do not have one of the most well-executed, brilliant, Spanish-sounding guitar parts in it, you're just coming up short. But no, Robbins delivers on every level here. The story, the narrative, the backing music, and he really takes that Sons of the Pioneer vocal style, that kind of soaring harmony thing, and almost every line, every verse ends with Robbins going up into those notes that really just him and Roy Orbison can touch. Out through the back door of roses I ran Out where the horses were tied I caught a good one, it looked like it could run Up on its back and away I did ride And you get that beautiful soaring background vocal and yeah, it's straight out of Sons of the Pioneers. Listen to Tumbling Tumbleweeds or Cool Water and you get that same vibe. Um, It's tragic. The woman is beautiful and wicked. There's a lot of action. It's 3-4, so it's a polka beat you can dance to. You can't go wrong here, folks. Yeah, I agree with you on most of your points here. Uh, I do agree that Grady Martin makes the record. Um, his guitar playing just in general is brilliant on most of the things he does that he's done in his career. It's amazing to think of all of the different styles he's played in with all of the different people he's played with. And even to this day, from time to time, I'll be listening to something. I'll look it up and I'll see that, that Grady's the one who actually played on that record. Um, you made the point that uh, Grady was a member of the Nashville A-Team. This song actually features another member of the A-Team, uh, Bob Moore, who played bass here. Uh, Bob often worked kind of as an uncredited producer with a lot of those Nashville A-Team sessions. So this song actually comes to us from the record Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs. One of the things I like about this is the fact that Marty Robbins actually wrote the song himself. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not really hung up on artists necessarily re, uh, you know, being the ones who write their own stuff all of the time. Uh, You wouldn't have a lot of great music if we didn't have people like a Bobby Braddock or 
you know, those guys who wrote so many epic songs, but weren't really known as performers. Uh, as far as this song goes, to me, there's an interesting twist here. So the narrator is clearly a criminal. Uh, he stole the horse. That part is undisputed. But to me, the actual murder part in this murder ballad is actually the cowboys killing the narrator. It seems to me like while the details are sketchy, we do have the line down when his hand for the gun that he wore. My challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat. A handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor. Just for a moment I stood there in silence, shocked by the foul evil deed I had done. Many thoughts raced through my mind as I stood there. I had but one chance and that was to run. Which tells me that perhaps the cowboy was the one who intent, was intent on murdering the narrator. So it seems to me like maybe that was a fair fight, but the narrator was gunned down by the cowboys in cold blood as revenge. Uh, interestingly, the character of Felina was actually based on a schoolmate of Marty Robbins's, uh, Fidelina Martinez. Um, I, I Actually, you pointed out the Grateful Dead covered this song. I looked into it a little bit. They actually covered it 389 times. One night a wild young cowboy came in Wilds the West Texas weed Dashing and daring a drink He was sharing with Wicked Felina The girl that I love So in anger My challenge is right for the love of this maiden Down went his hand for the gun that he wore You know, this was not a minimal part of their repertoire. It was pretty major. Um, I'd also like to point out that, you know, you're right. The song came in at four and a half minutes. The record label was so nervous to put it out as a single that what they actually did is they had an edited version uh, cut down to right around three minutes. And yet, as it turned out, almost every radio station, they preferred to play the longer version. So that says something about the music, because obviously that would be what you would edit out more than anything else to cut a song down. It's just the musical breaks. Um, also, you know, something that's maybe not as well known today in the music industry, because it doesn't really seem like it happens as much. But this was definitely a thing for many, many years, uh, decades. Uh, sequel songs were a big part of the music industry. And Marty Robbins actually wrote two sequels to El Paso. There was Felina from El Paso and then El Paso City, uh, both of which were done by him several years after the original. Uh, I want to say that Felina from El Paso is 1966 and El Paso City was 1976. But, you know, it seems like there was obviously some intention to squeeze out every last bit of juice out of the hit that El Paso was. But I actually think that El Paso City is a pretty good standalone song in itself. So what do you think, Jim? Well, yeah, Chris. I mean, you know, we pretty much agree on why we love the song. It's for both of us a song that we've been hearing since we were little kids. And then as adults, we got that kind of weird bonus of hearing Bob Weir and the Dead do this a lot of times uh, with varying degrees of success, you know, as a live improv band, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Back in El Paso, my life would be worthless. Everything's gone and life, nothing is left. But it's been so long since I've seen the young maiden. My love is stronger than my fear of death. 
himself spent a lot of his troubled youth growing up on ranches in Wyoming and Colorado. In fact, met his songwriting partner, uh, John Barlow, in that setting. And really, it was Weir's love of this type of music that kept this a real vibrant part of the Grateful Dead catalog. They would do Big River. uh, They would do El Paso. uh, Weir himself wrote a song called Mexicali Blues, which is kind of a generic version of these sorts of cowboy songs. And it uh, really kept Marty Robbins' music alive for a lot of an audience that you would think, you know, would never go in Mr. Robbins' direction. And they love the song. Absolutely. Uh, you know, something else that uh, that's interesting about that is that, so you make the point that a lot of people might not typically listen to Marty Robbins who would listen to, you know, the Grateful Dead. And there's a lot of truth in that. But also I think that there's probably also a lot of differences in the way that Marty Robbins himself is perceived by his audience at the time. Because to me, there are multiple Marty Robinsons, right? There's the white sport coat and a pink carnation Marty Robbins and devil woman Marty Robbins are nowhere near El Paso or Big Iron Marty Robbins. They're just not. And I I like the fact that he was able to evolve throughout his career like so many great artists do. Um, There's also something that neither of us talked about earlier that we should probably talk about now. And that's that this song actually contains a really neat literary effect where the first portion of the song is actually told in the past tense. You know, one night a wild young cowboy came in. And then eventually, midway through the song, it switches to present tense. Maybe tomorrow a bullet may find me. Tonight nothing's worse than this pain in my heart. And at last here I am on the hill overlooking El Paso. I can see Rose's cantina below. All of a sudden, it's here I am on a hill overlooking El Paso. So that, I think, is a, is a really interesting thing that Robbins obviously did intentionally. Oh, absolutely. And then you get to the end and you realize, again, it's this real kind of existential, surreal thing because the... The guy's dead, and it, it's kind of the story coming out of his last breaths, that idea of right before you go, your life flashes before your eyes, and this is what he's thinking on his way out of this world. I see the white puff of smoke from the rifle. I feel the bullet go deep in my chest. From out of nowhere, Felina has found me. And uh, you're right, as a testament to Robin's songwriting, it's really brilliant. And it's something that has come up in films a lot where you go through a journey with a character and boom, you get to the end and you find out it's the stories coming from beyond the grave, so to speak. And it's... um, that idea you bring up of, you know, Robbins as a songwriter and then compared to 
separate songwriters you know, writing for singers that very common in this late 50s, early 60s era. In Nashville, you have Boudelow and Bryant, the husband and wife team that write so many of the Everly Brothers hits. And then you have Carol King and Jerry Goffin, all the people in the Brill building up in New York. It's nice when you have somebody that's from that sort of troubadour tradition of writing their own songs, playing their instruments, singing their own songs. But let's not forget these teams of people that had the love of music, the love of language, and the exceptional skill to just crank out hit after hit. And you know a song is good because you can give it to any singer and the power of the composition, it's just going to come out. And Chris, that's something we've heard time and time again in music. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because even the songwriter that I mentioned uh, earlier, Bobby Braddock, if you can take if you take a step back and you look at his work, you have everything from He Stopped Loving Her Today by George Jones to I Want to Talk About Me by Toby Keith. There's just such a dichotomy there. And those are the kinds of things that we'd be missing if everybody did all their own songs. And that's why I said earlier, I try not to get too hung up on that aspect of things, but I do think it's an, it's an important reminder that while not everybody has the talent to write their own songs, even those who do know a good song when they hear it and they're not so caught up on doing only their own material that they'll pass up on greatness from the likes of Harlan Howard or Dallas Frazier or any of those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other kind of point of debate here is the the ethics in the song. The initial confrontation in the bar between the handsome young stranger and the narrator, this is sort of the accepted rules of the era that's being described in the song. The old West mentality, might makes right. But it's actually deliberately mentioned that the handsome young stranger, you know, the hand goes down for the gun. Okay, so fair play to both guys here. Our narrator was a little quicker on the draw. What kind of gets my attention is that there's well over a dozen guys that are willing to chase him down sometime afterwards, not even immediately afterwards, that this mob is is after him. I'm not sure I quite get that, given, again, that the original setting, the confrontation in the bar... That's not a terribly unusual thing for the era being described. I don't think it takes more than a dozen guys to bring down a single horse thief. So we have great, passionate, excessive love in the song. We have great, passionate, excessive mob justice to finish up the song. It's it's one of the great stories in country music. I We both love it. Cradled by two loving arms that I'll die for One little kiss and Felina Goodbye So, Chris is taking us into Knoxville Girl. This is the Leuven Brothers from 1956. The Leuven Brothers are really known for the beautiful sibling harmonies and a lot of tales of woe and death and tragedy. And Chris is really the expert on these guys. What do you got for us, Chris? So let's talk about Knoxville Girl by the Leuven Brothers. The song itself actually comes from an older 19th century Irish ballad called Wexford Girl. 
Uh, you'll also hear it under several different names. It, it goes back actually to the 1600s. It's the murder of a lady by the name of Ann Nichols uh, in 1683. Uh, although obviously the Leuven brothers is a retelling since it's now set in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, you mentioned the the harmony of the Leuvens. They can actually take a song like this, which is literally about the brutal beating death of a woman who did nothing to deserve it, and somehow they make it sound beautiful because of how well they harmonize. I met a little girl in Knoxville, a town we all know well, and every Sunday evening out in her Obviously, this is in the vein of those classic murder songs. You have a scenario where the narrator is upset or touched off by something. They don't really ever say what, but for no apparent reason, he picks a stick up off the ground, literally beats her to death in spite of her pleading to live, and throws her body in the river, goes home like nothing happened, tells his mom, no, no, don't worry, nothing happened. What are you worried about, mom? I, you know, I'm just, I cut my hand, I'm cool, don't worry. Saying, dear son, what have you done to bloody your close soul? I told my anxious mother I was bleeding at my nose. But, of course, he gets caught. They always get caught. Now, the interesting thing to me about these songs where they get caught is that, like most of these the, the songs in this genre, the narrator, of course, winds up being very remorseful. But the remorse doesn't appear to come as a result of the crime he's committed. He just is remorseful that his friends can't bail him out of jail. He's remorseful that he's going to have to actually do the time for doing the crime. He's remorseful that he has to atone for his sins. He's not remorseful for committing the sins in the first place. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There's a real history of these guys and, and these type of songs. Tom Dooley's another one where the guy's just an ass. And it comes down to this weird incel thing of marry me or I'll kill you. Or I'll kill you, why didn't you marry me? Or, the guy doesn't even really know what he wants. It's, it's just kind of nuts. And the Lumen Brothers' delivery, Chris, I mean, you're right with the vocal. It's very much like the Everly Brothers, where you're not sure if that second voice is really a second singer or is it more of a shadow. And the blend, it's just perfect. David Crosby used to say that he learned to be a great harmony singer accidentally because he wasn't sure that the Everly brothers or the Leuven brothers were actually two guys. And he tried to teach himself to sing both parts at the same time. 
So clearly this is a vocal style that's really unique. If it's stuff like this that led David Crosby to be a good harmony singer, you'd be a fool to argue with the quality of the singing and the way they arrange the vocals. Yeah, this actually comes from the debut album that the Leuven Brothers did for Capitol Records. Uh, the name of the record is Tragic Songs of Life. Uh, now, I do say debut album for Capitol Records. It is important to note that these guys had been recording for a number of years uh, prior to this this one coming out. Um, but they, they had had multiple contracts before they signed with Capitol. The song actually went to number 19 country. And the reason that they actually recorded it was because for years it had been the most requested song uh, at their live performances. The audience just, just couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, I guess eventually someone somewhere, uh, probably Ken Nelson at Capitol Records, did the math and figured out, well, if everybody wants to hear it, let's give them the chance to buy it. Now, we both talked about the fact that this is very much in the vein of the murder ballads and songs about death that come from across the pond uh, with Ireland and Scotland. But there's actually kind of an Americanized version of this as well. Uh, there's a lot of pop songs, teenage pop songs, especially, you know, in the 50s and 60s that it may not be the murder of somebody, but it's always a tragic death. Whether we're talking about songs like Last Kiss or uh, Tell Laura I Love Her, or any of those songs that are just, you know, Endless Sleep, which is another one which has been covered by country artists. There's a lot of songs like that. So I think the, the topic is always something that's been popular with uh, music audiences. It's just that it seems like there's a, a more sanitized version that you get in the, oh no, a tragic accident has happened because the car is stalled on the train tracks versus... I don't know, it's a stick. I picked it up. I killed her. What do you want? I held her close. I kissed her our last kiss. I found the love that I knew I would miss. But now she's gone. Even though I hold her tight, I lost my love, my life that night. Something else I wanted to touch on really quickly before we moved on is you had mentioned the, the harmony uh, of the Leuven brothers and how uh, David Crosby wasn't sure, was it the Leuven brother, the Everly brother? Because he didn't really know if there was one person or two people uh, singing those parts. And I know of at least one instance in which the Leuven brothers actually switch parts when they get to the chorus of a song, where the brother that's been singing lead suddenly comes in way higher to sing harmony, while the other brother comes in right in the place uh, where the original lead singer was. So these guys could just do magic with their voices. You know, it's amazing to me that these guys went through multiple recording contracts before they finally signed with Capitol. Uh, you know, the other labels that missed out, boy, did they miss out. They, had, they didn't realize they had magic in the room when they were trying to tell these guys what they should do instead of just letting them do what they knew how to do best. I'm here to waste my life away down in this dirty old jail. Girl, the girl I love so well. 
right that it's an old Scottish Irish tune. A lot of these murder ballads come from those particular countries and cultures. It's kind of common to those places that you have youthful tragedy, youthful death, a lot of anger, a lot of anger and romance being confused for each other. And and then you get that tradition, like with songs um, like Whiskey in the Jar, where the name of the town or the name of the person can change depending on the musician that's playing the song and whatever town he or she happens to be from. You know, if you're from Galway, if you're from Wexford, if you're from Knoxville, you're mostly going to drop in the hometown as the reference point of these things. It makes the story and the sadness of it connect a lot more with the audience. Aside from the vocal arrangement, I think this kind of subject matter, the gruesomeness of it, the random violence of it, makes its way into some of the more clever songwriting in the rock and roll era. You don't get Warren Zevon doing Excitable Boy unless there's records like this that came before it. is just really simple and I think like Chris said along with the singing that's part of the beauty of it it almost reads like a newspaper article or a true crime report you know I took the girl down the road I beat her with a stick there's no prettying it up there's no metaphor there's no symbolism it's just I beat her with a stick there was a pool of blood at my feet And then, yeah, when the guy goes home, his mom says, you know, well, what's with the blood? And he says, I cut myself, bloody nose. It reminds me of that bit in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci comes into his mom's house and she asks what's going on. And he's like, oh, we hit a deer. Okay. Anyway, you know, it reminds me, I need this knife. I'm going to take this. It's okay. Okay, yeah. Just need it for bring a while. it back, though, you know. Well, the poor thing, you know, we got, I hit him and his, uh, we hit the deer and his paw, what do you call it? The paw. The paw. The, the paw. Big old hoof. The hoof got caught in the grill. Oh. I gotta, I gotta hack it off. Ooh, come on, it's a sin. You gotta leave it there, you know. So, well, you know, sometimes you hit a deer. Sometimes you kill the beautiful woman down the road that you should have married. Either way, these things never end up happy. A lot of it comes from that old Romeo and Juliet tradition. Always keep in mind that in storytelling, love sells, and tragic love sells even more. You have a genre within a genre within a genre. You can trace this back to the Irish and the Scottish. You can trace that back to the Romeo and Juliet type stories that came from 
the Mediterranean and from the Italian way before Shakespeare's time. Uh, and again, there's nothing like a good love story that ends with everybody dead. Okay, through some of our discussions and previews for Six String Hayride, you have heard my illustrious partner, Chris, ask the musical question, does Earl really have to die? Oh, Jesus, hell yes, does he have to die in a big way. Getting poisoned and dumped in a truck is one of the best things that could happen to this kind of guy. So, yeah, we have Goodbye, Earl. From the Dixie Chicks from the year 2000, this was written by Dennis Lynn, who also wrote Burning Love for Elvis. This song went to number 13 on the country charts in 2000, but not without a little bit of controversy. This is a single that deals with not just violence, but women getting proper, justifiable karma revenge after trying to go through the conventional legal system process and that comes up short to help so they take matters into their own hands a lot of radio stations did decide to pick this up they did play the record and along with the record there would be public service announcements with hotline phone numbers and other resources for women who were going through domestic abuse issues Let's take a look at the song itself. We have Marianne and Wanda. They're best friends through school, through high school. Obviously, the song describes it and sets it up as they're living in kind of a small rural town. Marianne is fortunate enough and ambitious enough to get herself out of town. Marianne and Wanda were the best of friends all through their high school days. FFA. After graduation, Marianne went out looking for a bright new world. Wanda looked all around this town and all she found was Earl. Radio stations didn't want to play this because of the subject matter. It's perfectly fine when you have two guys in a gunfight with each other, a guy robbing a train, cowboys robbing a bank, anything like that. Absolutely fine. Radio doesn't seem to care. Folsom Prison, El Paso, a lot of these songs, nobody really batted an eye. But in the year 2000, when you have women standing up for themselves and getting revenge against a horribly abusive guy, then all of a sudden that's a problem. I think by the year 2000, if you can't have an honest discussion about domestic abuse, a woman's right to defend herself, a woman's right to access help and resources, and just how common of a thing this can be that's terribly short-sighted of us as a culture. And as Chris said, country music, you can do better.
Wanda stays behind, she marries one of the local small-town goofballs, a guy named Earl. Earl beats Wanda. After the wedding, the beating continues. She goes to the police. Not a lot of help. He beats her again. She gets a restraining order. This is very typical in these situations. Earl breaks the restraining order. He beats Wanda again. Wanda winds up in the hospital. She gets in touch with Marianne for a little help, a little friendly support. Marianne comes back into town, helps Wanda, and they come up with a plan to deal with this on their own. Let's face it, folks. Earl's already defied the police. He's defied the restraining order. You cannot rely on the system to help women in this situation on any regular basis. So Marianne and Wanda come up with a great plan. Earl likes eating black-eyed peas. The ladies poison the black-eyed peas. Earl eats them. Earl dies. Earl winds up in the trunk of the car. Marianne and Wanda leave town. They have Earl in the trunk. Hopefully they put him somewhere nice, comfy, and quiet. Eventually, the police come around the house saying, hey, we're trying to follow up on the restraining order. Have you seen Earl? Can you give us any information? And, of course, Marianne and Wanda say, no, we haven't seen him. We don't know where he is. The policeman says, thank you, ladies. If you get any information, give us a call. Let us know. Policeman leaves. Marianne and Wanda sum this up in a lovely way. Earl is the missing person that no one misses. And really, guys like this, the best we can hope for is that they wind up poisoned and in the trunk of a car somewhere. Domestic abuse is a real serious issue. Like we had discussed, radio stations were hesitant to play the record, hesitant to deal with the issue straight on. But again, gunfights, horse wrangling, bank robbing, alcoholism moonshine making, all that stuff is considered part of the heart and soul of country music. So all of a sudden, women sticking up for themselves is going to be a controversial issue to get into? Absolutely not. It's a domestic issue. It's a health issue. It's a woman's issue. It's an issue that everybody should care about because 
harm to your fellow humans without any cause of self-defense or anything like that is just an awful thing needs to be confronted. So the Dixie Chicks in the year 2000, with their record Goodbye Earl, they took this head on. They did a fantastic job. I would love to see more records like this. Nice job by the Dixie Chicks. So you mentioned that the song was written by Dennis Lind. He actually wrote a series of songs about Earl. Uh, the other one that I'm, I guess not overtly, but at least a little familiar with is Queen of My Double Wide by Sammy Kershaw. Now this song was actually recorded uh, for an unreleased album by a band named Sons of the Desert. Uh, they, they never did get around to releasing it in any format as far as I am aware. So uh, the Chicks then included it on Fly, which was their follow-up to their breakthrough, which is Wide Open Spaces. Um, of course, it seemed like they ruled the airwaves at that time. Uh, it's actually interesting. This song Mandel from the record, just due to the success of it playing as an album track, uh, you mentioned that some stations were hesitant to play it. I actually did a little research, and I learned that of the 149 stations uh, which were being tracked, 20 of them refused to play this song. Now, ostensibly, the reason they give is because of the violence that's portrayed within the song. Uh, they were protecting themselves, but they were the killers in this song. You have stations that are fine playing a song like El Paso, which features a, a cold-blooded killing. You have a, no issue with a station playing Folsom Prison, which features an even more cold-blooded killing. But the second women stand up for themselves, suddenly a lot of stations took issue with that. Um, it's interesting because the only other instance I can think of of a song being banned uh, to some degree because of violence in women is The Thunder Rolls by Garth Brooks because they made him remove the, the third verse about the woman killing the man for running around on her and treating her poorly. So some stations actually, you know, you mentioned this, some stations started giving the numbers to domestic violence shelters when they would play this song. And I think maybe there's some good that can come of that. But overall, I mean, do better country music, please. listening to a six-string hayride with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Today, it's murder ballads. Don't forget, at the end of the show, we've got the Cash Carter cornbread recipe for you. It's a good one. Next, we have Long Black Veil, 1959, by Lefty Frizzell, written by Danny Dill and Marjan Wilkin. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, there was someone killed neath the town hall light. 
There were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. Dill and Wilkins set out deliberately to try to write an instant folk classic. They were drawing from two sources primarily, an old folk song by Red Foley called God Walks These Hills With Me, and a story revolving around the death of film star Rudolph Valentino. For a long time, there was a woman who was never identified, who wore a dark veil and would visit Rudolph Valentino's grave and leave a rose on the grave. It's never been determined who she was or what her motive was, but it is a real catching story. Long Black Veil is the story of a man who is falsely accused of a murder. It's a cold, dark night. He's outside. There's very dim kind of streetlight view. And nobody can really properly identify the killer. But the song tells us that it looked a lot like the narrator. The narrator is arrested. He's brought before a judge. The judge is pretty straightforward with him. You know, look, man, if you were somewhere else, you won't die for this crime. It turns out that the guy has an alibi, but for a variety of very deeply emotional and ultimately tragic reasons, he will not say where he truly was and what he really was doing. The judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it meant my life. I'd been in the arms of my best friend's wife. He was in the arms of his best friend's wife, and he refuses to bring that up in court. His love for this woman is such that he will not out their secret. He will not dishonor her. He will not leave her to be a victim of scorn and ridicule and malicious gossip in a small rural town. And her husband, he mentions, is his best friend. So he's also maintaining a code of silence in some sort of self-appointed, noble kind of fashion that he's not going to let his friends suffer either, knowing that his wife was fooling around on him. Again, very noble, very sad and tragic. We get through the song and we wind up feeling sorry for the narrator here, for the victim, even though he is in an improper, adulterous relationship with his best friend's wife. It still comes off as sad and tragic, and the listener feels a lot of sympathy for these characters. Now, in 1959, for Lefty Frizzell, this was a real big deal. He had mostly been doing more quicker, honky-tonk, dance kind of numbers, This was a real departure for him, and it charted at number six. 
So sometimes a great artist can really take a step outside their comfort zone and still come up with something that is just straight up masterpiece. Long Black Veil is one of those songs that is deeply ingrained in the American music catalog. I think it's one of the more brilliant of the tragic folk murder ballads, real sympathetic characters, really difficult, sad situation. Again, you have a guy who's wrongly accused of murder, and he can get himself out of it. But to do that, he has to ruin the woman he loves and his best male friend. And he stays tight-lipped, mouth shut through the whole thing. He will not give these people up and have them suffer for the affair that he was carrying on. This song, a testament to its greatness, is the amount of people that have covered it. It's extraordinary. You have the Kingston Trio, Johnny Cash, Rosanna's. The band played this song, a tragic, old-timey murder ballad, as part of the music at Woodstock. think that speaks to how great the song is. I think it speaks to the band in terms of their willingness to put something that's a bit of a curveball on the audience. And I think it's a compliment to the audience, too, to absorb something like that in the middle of a very hedonistic three-day straight-up rock and roll festival. You also have Bill Monroe doing this. You have Mike Nesmith, Jerry Garcia, and the Wolf Tones, a great Irish band. I think one of the best versions of this in recent years is by another Irish band, the Chieftains. The Chieftains did a cover of this in the 1990s with a little help from Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. For a long time, my personal opinion of Mick Jagger has been that he kind of stopped being a proper singer and became a guy who is really good at yelling musical things in football stadiums. That opinion of him could not be more wrong here. On this track, where he and Keith and the Chieftains take on Long Black Veil, the vocal is haunting, disturbing, sad, tragic. It's full of emotion. It is Mick Jagger at his best, living up to his reputation as one of the great singers of his era. Well, the judge said, son, what's your alibi? If you're somewhere else, well, you don't have to die. And I spoke naughty word, though it meant my life. I'd been in the arms. And then, of course, you have the Chieftains who just dive right in and really make a, a masterpiece out of the arrangement. The song itself 
is an embodiment of that old literary trope, it's a dark and stormy night. It really is. And the way the chieftains open it, it's so haunting. It's so spot-on accurate that as you're listening to the musical introduction they come up with, you're literally hearing wind, rain, you're seeing the fog, you're seeing the darkness, you are tripping over the gravestones. They just put you right there in that spot. arrangement that they come up with carries through the whole song it is absolutely perfect personally this is my favorite version of the song and again Mick Jagger just surprises the hell out of everybody with an incredibly brilliant performance and the Chieftains are right up there with the great musicians of the world certainly the best in recent years in Irish music you're just not going to get a better interpretation where the music actually sets that scene. Cold, dark, stormy, tragic, sad. They are just right there. It's brilliant. few songs that really pack the emotional punch of Long Black Veil. You have a guy deeply in love with his best friend's wife. You have a guy who's accused of murder. He cannot get out of it without telling a secret that's going to destroy the two people that mean the most to him. So he carries that secret to his grave. The scaffold was high and eternity near She stood in a crowd and shed not a tear But sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in a long black veil she cries all my bones and the woman like the valentino story carries a quiet secret visitation to his grave a remembrance a vigil to recognize the sadness of her lost love long black veil from 1959 it's going to be a classic a thousand years from now. And if this song does not move you in some way, it is entirely possible that you just can't be moved. Yeah, so I, I think you make a lot of really good points there, Jim. So as you mentioned, the song tells the story of a man who's accused of murder. And all he has to do to free himself is give an alibi. But because of what that alibi is, he just feels trapped and remains silent. He's not willing to say what he would need to say to free himself because of the consequences that would result of, uh, from that. The judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it made my life, for I had been in the arms 
of my best friend's wife. So to me, one of the interesting questions that I kind of reflect on when I'm listening to a murder ballad, or, or even the teenage death songs that we discussed earlier in this episode, is who's at fault for the, the killing? And in this one, it really seems to me like it's not a traditional murder per se. I mean, of course there was a murder. Somebody that we don't know and that is not really introduced in the song was murdered at the beginning of the song. But the death that the song really reflects on is the death of the narrator. Because of the stigma that would be placed on her for doing so, he's just not going to do that. Now, as far as the actual, I guess, more technical aspects of the songs, I really love the haunting quality of the vocal here. I mean, you're right. This is a clear departure from what Lefty was, was traditionally doing. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds well. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. This song just, it's miles apart from most of his other work. And I really enjoy how it's just so simple and clean compared to so many songs from this era. Uh, you, you mentioned that the song did go to number six country. Uh, that's actually uh, his highest charting record in six years at this point. And it actually, it's the last song he ever put on the charts. Uh, you mentioned a lot of covers. There's another really interesting one that intrigues me. And that's that the band Nazareth has covered that. She watched these hills in a long black veil She visits my grave Where the night winds well But they also did a cover of Love Hurts, which was, of course, famously done by Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harris. So it's interesting that this band clearly has some sort of country stylings when they when they would look at songs to record. Uh, also in 2019, this song was actually selected by the uh, Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry. Uh, so I, I think that says a lot about this song as well. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. That nails it perfectly. The storytelling, the arrangement, the really unique position that this takes in Lefty Frizzell's catalog, and the wide brilliant variety of the cover versions of this. You have Johnny Cash's masterful storytelling. You have Mick Jagger with the Chieftains doing something so incredibly steeped in Gothic horror storytelling that you'd think Mary Shelley was there while they were doing it. And then, as you mentioned, you know, really unique covers in the rock and roll era from Nazareth. And then the one that struck me as really interesting was the band's cover. So, yeah, Long Black Veil, Lefty Frizzell, Johnny Cash, and a host of brilliant musicians touching one of the all-time classics in the American Song Catalog. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. Nobody knows, nobody sees, 
Nobody knows but me. Well, now it's time to talk about what is probably the single most popular and well-known murder ballad, good old Tom Dooley. Uh, this song was made insanely popular in 1958 by the Kingston Trio, and more than Marty Robbins and his sequel songs to El Paso, these guys just milked the bejesus out of this thing. It was even on their Christmas record. Yep, Tom Dooley killing his girlfriend. Yeah, what the hell, put it on the Christmas record. I'm sure you can slap a little mistletoe on it and just slide right by. Uh, so again, from 1958, the Kingston Trio, you also have really good versions by Steve Earle, and you have a lot more accurate versions by both Doc Watson and the Grateful Dead. Tom Dooley was a fellow named Tom Dula, and he was twice convicted and hung for the murder in 1866 of a pregnant Laura Foster. So in the Doc Watson version, in the Grateful Dead version, in the more traditional versions of the song, think not the Kingston Trio, you get a real journalistic blow-by-blow -blow of killed poor Laura Foster, now you have to die. Hang your head, Tom Dooley, hang your head and cry. You killed poor Laurie Foster and you know you're bound to die. You left her by the roadside where you begged to be excused. You left her by the roadside, then you hit her clothes and shoes. It's not as spiffed up as the Kingston Trio arrangement. It's more, actually it's a lot more like Knoxville Girl, and that is just kind of brutal to the point. This is what happened, this is how it happened, end of story. Uh, and again, uh, Tom Dula was twice convicted for this. They hung him in 1868. So it did take a couple years for him to get through the justice system. And all of this happened in North Carolina. It, in the early to mid-20s, became a bit of a folk legend through North Carolina. And then the earliest versions of it as a song start to come up in 1929. So this song had a good almost 30 years of being a hardcore, very graphic, very straight-to-the-point murder ballad. Then in the late 50s, the Kingston Trio and their beautiful matching outfits try to pretty it up a bit. They have a huge hit with it. You know, if you've been in Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or any of those camping type things, you have probably encountered this song as a kid, not fully realizing what was going on. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang.
can't help you there. Sorry. But again, if you want to get to the heart of the matter, a true story, deep in the South, brutal killing, tragic love story. The woman was very young and pregnant. This is the song. It's just so well known. It's hard to go anywhere where you're going to find somebody that can at least sing or recognize part of that course. And that's Tom Dooley. He's mean, he's awful, he paid for it. We all know about it. You took her on the hillside for to make her your wife. You took her on the hillside and there you took her alive. You dug the grave four feet long and you dug it three feet deep. You rolled the cold clay over her and tromped it with your feet. Hang your head, Tom Dooley, hang your head and cry. You killed poor Laurie Foster and you know you're bound to die. And off to you, Chris. What do you know about Tom Dooley? Well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the outfits of the Kingston Trio. So we're definitely going to link a video clip to our Facebook page. Uh, and we'll make sure that we, we link to that in the show notes for this one. I think everybody should take a look at that and try and figure out, are these guys trying to sing you a song, report on a news story, serve you a hot dog? What's happening? So you you mentioned that this song was covered by the, the Kingston Trio almost 30 years after it was originally done. You know, I think a lot of people kind of forget how important folk music was in the American music scene in the late 50s, early 60s. Of course, this is the scene that Bob Dylan comes from uh, and a lot of others. So this is the song that started it all. It's kind of like the big bang of the American folk music uh, revival of that time. Met her on the mountain Stabbed her with my knife Hang down your head, Tom Julie Hang down your head and cry Hang down your head, Tom Julie Poor boy, you're bound to die You mentioned that this song was actually covered by damn near everyone, and, and that's true. Uh, like you said, it was around for quite a while before uh, it became before the Kingston Trio did it. The version that we're primarily sharing clips from today was actually uh, done by the Grateful Dead. They appear to only have played the song once. So this comes from the show from uh, November seventeenth, nineteen seventy eight. Hang your head, Tom Dooley, hang your head and cry. Kill poor Laura Foster, now you know you're bound to die. Uh, for those of you who may be familiar with The Dead Live, there's something about this version that actually really amused me, and that's the fact that you can hear Bob Weir try to come in on the chorus at the wrong spot early on, and then for the rest of the song, he waits for Garcia to start, and then he jumps in. He never again tries to figure out where he's supposed to come in at. Hang it, Tom Dooley, hang it and cry. Kill poor Laura Foster, you know you're bound to die. Foster, you know you're bound to die. 
Um, overall, though, I would say this is a great song. I think a lot of people should familiarize themselves not only with, I suppose, the Grateful Dead's version and the Kingston Trio version, but this is one where if you're really interested in learning about this music and where it comes from, go back and try and find some of the earlier versions and some of the covers. You're not going to be disappointed. Trouble, oh, it's trouble, a-rolling through my breast. As long as I'm a-living, boys, they ain't gonna let me rest. I know they're gonna hang me, tomorrow I'll be dead. Though I never even harmed a hair on poor little Laurie's head. Hang your head, Tom Dooley, hang your head and cry. You kill poor Laurie Foster and you know you're bound to die. This week's recipe is from the Johnny Cash and June Carter family cookbook, and it's the Cash Carter family recipe for good old-fashioned cornbread. Whether you're on the run from the law or sitting in the house on a rainy day, there's nothing like a big warm hunk of cornbread to keep your belly happy. For the Johnny Cash June Carter family cornbread recipe, you will need two cups of self-rising cornmeal mix or one and one-half cups white cornmeal one half cup all-purpose flour, two teaspoons baking powder, and one teaspoon salt. You will need three quarter cup of shortening. You will need one and a half cups of whole buttermilk and one large egg. You will also need one tablespoon of vegetable oil, three tablespoons finely diced yellow onions, two tablespoons finely diced jalapeno pepper, one quarter cup of shredded, sharp, white cheddar cheese. Preheat your oven to 450 degrees. Place the cornbread mix in a large bowl. Stir with a whisk. Add one half cup of the shortening, and using a fork, cut the shortening into the mix until small clumps form. Stir in the buttermilk, the egg, and the vegetable oil. Mix well. Fold in the onions, the jalapenos, and the cheese. Place the remaining quarter cup of the shortening in a medium well-seasoned cast iron skillet or an 8 by 11 inch baking pan. Place the skillet in the oven for five minutes or until the shortening bubbles and cooks the cornmeal batter when a drop is spooned into the skillet. Carefully remove the skillet from the oven and slowly pour the batter into the hot skillet. Return the skillet to the oven and cook the cornbread about 30 minutes until the top is golden brown and a toothpick inserted in the middle comes out clean. You are going to love this. Well, folks, that was Murder Songs. We started with Marty Robbins' El Paso, A Man in Love, A Man Doomed to Die Because of Love. Then we did Knoxville Girl by the Leuven Brothers, The Sweet Harmonies, The Sad Story, The Violent Murder, and again, The Beautiful Harmonies. We said goodbye to Earl because violence against women is just not ever acceptable. Get a little poison in those black-eyed peas, get them in the trunk of the car, the ladies live happily ever after. I like that story. And of course, Long Black Veil, the gothic horror classic in American music, done by so many great artists over the years. And Tom Dooley. Kingston Trio took kind of a lighthearted approach to this one. It became a real popular campfire song, but 
Doc Watson and the Grateful Dead, uh, in their separate versions, really got to the heart of the matter and stuck more to the kind of journalistic or the straight folktale version that came out of the Carolinas based on the original crime. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on all of those points, uh, especially regarding Earl. Um, in, indeed, goodbye, Earl. Nobody's going to miss you. Nobody's ever going to miss you. Nobody cares at all. Um, I really hope that those who have been listening to the podcast at this point, you know, the, the clips that we present here are enjoyable in and of themselves. But please do yourself a favor. Go look for these songs, find them, listen to them, listen to the additional clips that we played, find those songs. Let this inspire you to go out and learn more about murder than you ever thought you'd want to know. You know, the whole point of, of doing a project like this is to try and present these songs that have been a part of our lives for, for so long for Jim and myself to the public at large. And again, to hopefully give you an interesting way to think about them, but to inspire you to actually dig into this music on your own. I guess to give a little bit of a, a background to myself, one of the things that I did early on in my personal musical journey is I would listen to a lot of artists like, for example, the Rolling Stones. And then as I started learning more about the Stones and reading more about the Stones, I learned that they were influenced by a group of musicians prior to themselves, mostly the American bluesmen. So I went back and I started listening to that music. And then I started learning about the earlier versions of that. And when the blues migrated from the Delta. So the idea of all of this is give yourself a starting point and then take your own journey. It's always something that you'll get more out of it than you ever thought you would. And you'll find this new way of enjoying things that, that hopefully will continue to inspire you and grow. Yeah, absolutely. And just as kind of an overall tip for music lovers everywhere, when you find out who you really enjoy as a musician, as an artist, find out who turned them on. Because specific to some of the music we're talking about on the Hayride here, I can think of two really easy examples. Both Ringo Starr and Jeff Beck as children have often said that going to cowboy movies, the Gene Autry movies, the Sons of the Pioneers, that music, that was a big part of their childhood and a big part of their early impression of what music was and where music could take you. So open up your imagination, find the guys you like, the ladies you like, track down who turned them on, and you will be on a journey that will be its own reward. Thanks very much for listening to Six String Hayride. And remember, please go to the Facebook page, also called Six String Hayride, Click on the happy thumb, listen to the music samples, check out the recipes, and yeah, there will be a picture of the Kingston Trio in those wacky pink shirts. We'll see you down the road, folks. Also, don't forget, you can email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. Please send us any questions you may have, uh, comments you may want to make. If you have any sort of constructive criticism, that's also welcome. And also, please, whatever podcast platform that you chose to listen to this on, please don't hesitate to go give us a review, uh, a rating and a review. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on Six String Hayride. Thank you to Balky, Stevie, and Fergus, as always. And hang out with us next time. Go for a ride and talk about prison and prison songs and the prisoners who sing them.
We'll see you next time, folks.